Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cold-Blooded, Part 2. Robert Balding was an auxiliary fireman at Knowles Green Fire Station, just outside of the town of Staines, and 16 and a half miles southwest of Chiswick. Far from the fiery brunt of the Luftwaffe's Blitz, this little village sometimes got a crashed fighter, a downed bomber, or a lost V-1 rocket exploding in their fields. But mostly, they saw car crashes, stuck cats, and chip and fires. But very rarely, a murder. Having finished a 48-hour shift, on Saturday the 7th of October at 9.10am, Robert took a shortcut and strolled down a dirt track at the rear of Stainash Crescent. With the wind blowing a gale, and the ground boggy and wet. He was too tired to realize what he was seeing when his eyes spied a bundle of rags in a ditch. The ditch was wide and shallow, he recalled. I saw it was a man who I thought was sleeping. Only who would sleep face down in the mud on a cold night like this? When I went to him, it struck me that with his feet higher than his head, that he must be ill. I shook his shoulder, only he did not move, groan, or murmur. And with his dark blue overcoat pulled right up over his eyes and his head, as I lifted the lapel, I saw from the color of his face, which was blue and gray, that he was dead. Robert called the police, and with the body being someone who was loved, the people who missed him were already worried. Having failed to pick her up at 8am as planned, his girlfriend Violet called his pal Arthur Green at Godfrey Davies, who hadn't seen him since 11.05pm and she reported him missing. And with Harry Hawkins, the owner of the Ford V8, expecting him back at 9am, Knowing him to be honest and punctual, he gave the police the car's description, the license plate, and the driver's name. 
only the missing man, the stolen car and the dumped body were yet to be connected. Divisional Detective Inspector Tansel arrived at 9.45am. The ditch was an odd spot to dump a body. As being 440 yards from the road, this 11-foot wide, 3-foot deep ditch was 22 feet from the dirt track, so it wasn't the kind of place you could just stumble upon. With the corpse in a state of rigor mortis, having been dead for between 4 to 10 hours, there were no signs of violence, struggle or defensive wounds. Lying face down, with his limbs crossed and his once neat clothes all muddy and rocked up, it was clear that someone had dragged him to the ditch. And with his jacket unbuttoned, as a very possible robbery, anything of value had been stolen, with his killer leaving all the crap. Two hankies, a broken comb, a latch key, five cigarettes, a cinema ticket, a pocket knife, a rubber, and a vial of three pills. Which also meant that the police couldn't identify him. They had no idea who he was, why he was killed, or who by. But they knew he hadn't died here. An autopsy confirmed that the body had been dumped within two hours of his death, and that a single 45 caliber bullet had nicked the underside of his rear sixth rib, exited by the third front rib, and had perforated both lobes of his right lung and his spinal cord leaving him paralysed and drowning in his own blood. With the blood on his palm matching the exit wound to his chest, Robert Churchill, a gun expert for the Met Police, confirmed that although there was no scorching found on his back, the shot was fired at a close range. As with the exit wound being keyhole-shaped, this indicated that the bullet had turned sideways meaning it had been fired from a minimum of nine inches. And with a concentrated pattern of blood spatter on both of his legs, this suggested that the victim was in a seated position when he was shot. So was this a carjacking, a robbery, or an execution? The killer had been careful to leave nothing behind, with no ID, no blood, no prints, and no bullets. And yet, the car itself could not say the same. On the dirt road, DDI Tansel spotted two parallel tire marks, exactly four feet and ten inches apart, veering in a sharp-handed curve off the road and onto the grass by the ditch, with the tread leaving distinct grooves and small tufts of grass which had been cut away and were soaked in oil. During house-to-house inquiries, Reginald Turney of 68 Stainash Crescent stated, I was awoken at 3am or thereabouts by the sound of a car's engine revving hard as if it was being driven on bumpy ground. He only heard these sounds, but by the ditch, 
between the tire grooves and the cut grass bumps. The detective found the handbrake return spring of an almost new car, which Ralph Blackburn, a specialist at the Ford Motor Company in Dagenham, would confirm it belonged to a Ford V8 saloon. At the crime scene, the killer had been cautious not to leave any clues. And yet, through cold-blooded arrogance, he had tossed the victim's possessions that he didn't want out of the car's back window, which led a kind boy doing a good deed for a total stranger to stumble upon vital evidence before the body was even found. At 8am, John Anthony Jones, an electrician's apprentice, was passing the Great West Road near Kane's Lane when he spotted a brown leather wallet on a grass verge. Handing it to the police, inside was the driving license, the checkbook and the ID of 34-year-old George Edward Heath, a man who had been reported missing in a possible stolen car whose description matched the body in the ditch. Identified by his wife Winifred, with the police having circulated the details of a grey Ford V8 saloon, registration plate RD8955. Within 36 hours, the police had identified the man, the car and a possible motive. What they needed was to find his cold-blooded killer before he killed again. Second Lieutenant Richard Allen, of the 101st Airborne of the US Army, was the name he gave. Based in Reading, he went by the name of Ricky. Only this wasn't Ricky, and the uniform was stolen. As a thick-set brute, like an archetypal gangster, with dark swept-back hair like a mafia hitman, and cold dead eyes like he was devoid of any emotion. 22-year-old Private Carl Gustav Holton wanted to be someone. He wanted to be big, feared, respected, and he didn't care who he had to step on to get it. Born to Swedish parents in Stockholm on the 3rd of March 1922, they entered America in 1923 when he was only one year old. But with his father being a man with a notoriously violent temper who beat him black and blue. Although he could have had his mother's kindness, instead he mirrored this monster. Educated at the farm and trade school in Boston, Carl was not best blessed with brains being a sturdy man of brawn with slow wits and quick fists. And although, as a married man with a daughter, he had tried to hold down a job as a clerk, a mechanic, a lorry driver and a skating instructor, being a moody, short-fused brute, he resented authority, especially when he was inducted into the US Army in 1943. shipped to the UK in January 1944 as a truck driver for the 501st Infantry, 
although none of the soldiers knew it, he was due to take part in the bloody invasion of Normandy, codenamed Operation Overlord on the 6th of June 1944. But burdened by a fiery temper and a criminal bent, he never did. As a selfish, arrogant man who was unfaithful to his wife and unfaithful to his girlfriend, in the weeks following the invasion, when his comrades were giving their lives and soaking foreign shores with their own blood, this sticky-fingered thief, brutal lump and gutless traitor only ever thought about himself and his needs. On the 14th of July, 1944, Private Carl Halton absconded from his barracks and going AWOL for almost a month. He was arrested, fined $20, and imprisoned for 20 days for carrying a concealed weapon. One day before his court-martial, he again went AWOL. Only with no intention to ever return, he went on a spree of thievery. He stole the uniform of 2nd Lieutenant Richard Allen, another of Private Werner J. Meyer, which he stashed in a U.S. Army B-4 bag in the cloakroom of Hammersmith Tube Station. He also stole a six-wheeled, two-and-a-half-ton U.S. Army truck from the 101st Airborne, as well as a Colt Remington automatic pistol stolen from Staff Sergeant Sherman which being loaded with seven rounds of 45 caliber bullets, which was a gun he would use to kill a cabbie in cold blood, who he hadn't met until 15 minutes before the murder. Carl Halton dreamed of being a gangster, but what he wanted most was a girl who would adore him. Tuesday the 3rd of October, Paul's Cafe, 1 Queen Caroline Street in Hammersmith. A greasy spoon, which was thick with cigarette plumes, heart-clogging fry-ups and the steam of a bubbling tea urn. Amongst a sea of soldiers, civvies and cabbies, Len Bexley sat chatting to his daughter's friend when Carl came in. Ricky Allen, Meet Georgina Grayson, Len said, introducing the sour-faced hulking brute to the slim-faced 18-year-old with brown-curled hair, pale skin and red lips. Quickly smitten, like him, she couldn't let on that her name was an alias, and although he used his to avoid arrest, hers was to mask the shame that this part-time dancer and wannabe actress was actually just plain old Elizabeth Jones, also known as Betty, who was an out-of-work waitress from the mining town of Neath in South Wales. Fresh to the big city, sweet little Georgie sought a life of excitement. And here, she found Ricky. Ricky was unlike any man she had ever met. A bad boy without a care in the world, and a dark brooding menace who did whatever he liked. 
and as they chatted, he coolly told her of his crimes. Ricky told me of several jobs he'd done, she said. He'd broken into the Hope and got 50 quid. Wednesday last, he did a jewellers and a gown shop in King Street. A cafe in Shepherd's Bush, a greengrocer's and a pawn shop. He'd broken into several pubs in Reading. And he'd shot an American soldier. I think he'd said he'd drowned him. He also said he'd killed a man and a woman with a gun in the West End. Staring into his soulless eyes, as this callous killer spoke so casually about murder, given that the worst thing she had ever done was to run away from home, she should have fled, but she didn't. Her heart was racing, her eyes were wide, and her mouth was dry. But the brute didn't frighten her, he excited her. 10.30pm, he picked her up in a six-wheeled, two-and-a-half-ton U.S. Army truck, which he bragged, I stole from Reading a few days ago. Being hot, the truck was probably being hunted, and although her instincts should have been to get out, run, and don't look back, as an immature little girl who was raised on the diet of American gangster movies, and not reality, She was drawn to his thrills and his danger. In truth, he could have been a bullshitter. But in the truck, he pulled out a loaded pistol. The gun he would later use to kill a lone cabbie in cold blood. And although she'd state, he said he'd killed several people in Chicago with a gun. Again, she didn't scream and she didn't flee. She shared a dream which would seal her fate. I'd love to do something exciting, she said. Something dangerous, like being a gun mall. And there the deal was done. Ricky would get his girl, and Georgie would get her gangster. That night, they drove, heading west and prowling the unlit country lanes on the outskirts of Reading. Having driven through the town and found nothing of interest, Georgie said, we started back towards London at about 2am. When we got on the road back, near Maidenhead, on the London to Bath Road, we passed a girl. She was a lone lady on a bicycle, heading home after a long shift at work. We drove on for about five minutes and pulled up at the side of the road. It was dark, isolated, with hedgerows on either side, and the only light to be seen was the faint light of her bicycle's headlamp. He got out and waited for the girl to come along. Looking like a parked-up truck, with no one inside, the girl would have seen nothing and sensed no danger as she passed by. 
but as the brood sprang from the shadows. As the girl came alongside, I saw him push her. She fell, and she screamed, Don't touch me! Cut, bruised and shaken. As she stumbled to her feet, with Ricky picking up her purse as one of the prizes he would wantonly take. Gripped by fear, the girl didn't need to think twice as she fled for her life. And as she ran down the middle of a dark country lane, as fast as her legs could carry her, having been taught her to drive a truck by Ricky, he barked, Get after her! as Georgie floored the engine. Behind the girl, the engine revved, and with its dim yellow lights illuminating her panicked frame as it darted back and forth like a frightened rabbit. With the girl having nowhere to run, all she would have heard was the engine getting ever nearer and closer, never knowing what her fate may be. Maybe crushed under the wheels, maybe kidnapped and held for ransom, or maybe raped tortured and murdered. From the right-hand passenger seat, Ricky spotted her, saying, She's there! She's there! As his torch shined on the whites of her petrified eyes as she crouched in the shrubbery. But being in the garden of a cottage, as the black blinds moved, and a light shined upon her. The truck quickly sped on, and the girl was safe. It was a lucky escape for her, but only just. Back at Hammersmith, we parked the truck in the old Goldman Cinema car park in Sussex Place, and went back to my room, and Ricky stayed the night. Excited by the thrill of the chase, they had sex. But the contents of the young girl's handbag wasn't much of a score for this gangster and his gun mole. Having nicked a book, six shillings, some clothing coupons, a flannel, some soap, and a sanitary towel. The next morning, Georgie introduced the landlady to her new boyfriend. But being a good judge of character, she said, I thought there was something fishy about him. Georgie said she was going to meet him again that night at midnight. I told her she must be mad, that she must be asking for trouble, and that she was likely to have her throat slit. But Georgie said nothing, as by then, she was smitten. Georgie was now the girlfriend of a gangster. But having failed to live up to his reputation as a killer, the attack on the young girl in a dark lane who was riding a bicycle had come across not as callous and cruel, but as cowardly. That night, Ricky promised to make it up to her, and a lone cabbie would be in his sights. Thursday the 5th of October, late afternoon. 
having sold off the girls' clothing coupons for one pound. The twosome went to the cinema, and as they departed the Galmont at roughly 10pm, Ricky said, We'll go and do another job. I understood he meant to go and steal some money from someone, Georgie said. Brazenly returning to Reading in the stolen truck, a little after midnight, they pulled up to the White Hart pub, which he had spied the night before. With the pub closed, but the staff cashing up, it was the perfect hit. A quick rush of adrenaline and a big score as he hightailed it out of there with the night's takings. For Ricky the gangster, the professional thief, and the ruthless killer, this little heist was surely chicken feed, and the kind of crime which would make him worthy in the eyes of his girlfriend. Only as he sat in the truck, nervously shifting in his seat, his teeth gritted, the gun in his sweaty hand, and him geeing himself up for an armed robbery. As Georgie excitedly watched on, he suddenly had a change of heart and drove off. Where are you going? Georgie snapped. Why are we driving away? Ricky said he was certain that the caper was too dangerous. I saw them. They were watching me, he said. Only Georgie had seen no one. The drive back to London was the longest they'd endured. The silence was painful. And with Georgie getting fed up with this little big man who was all mouth and no trousers, the thrill was gone. Her man was weak. And Georgie was looking elsewhere. So it was as they approached Marble Arch that Ricky said Georgie had an idea. As we got there, she suggested we rob a cab. And after so many failures, being keen to impress her, the killer of George Heath went hunting. For a short while, they prowled the West End in the truck hunting for a lone cab. We saw one just off Park Lane, Georgie would state. Ricky said, I'm going to follow it and take his money. And with a six-wheeled, two-and-a-half-ton US Army truck being a familiar sight in wartime Britain, they didn't stand out as they tailed the lone cabbie four miles northwest up the Edgware Road and all the way to Cricklewood. Ricky stated, The cab stopped for ten minutes. I parked the truck about half a block back. The cab then turned around and I followed it. Tailing this dark Ford saloon as it headed west, it didn't matter who the driver was. All that mattered was how much money he had and how impressed Georgie would be. 
keeping his distance. Ricky held back until he found a lonely spot on the Kilburn High Road. Where there were no cars nor houses, no passers-by nor policemen. As the truck roared past, from the left-hand driver's side window, with the cabin blackout, all he could make out was a lone driver smoking a cigarette, unaware of what was about to happen to him. And with the time being 2.10am, it was then that Ricky struck. I passed the cab and turned in front of it, forcing it to stop. With her eyes wide, Georgie watched excitedly, a gangster movie playing out right in front of her. As Ricky jumped down, stuck the gun in the window, and with the muzzle right in the driver's face, he demanded, I want your money, all of it. The cabbie, 56-year-old John Strangeway, whimpered with fear. I don't have any money. I've just come out. Which was the truth, as his cash box was bare. And as Ricky reached in to check, it was then that Ricky, who was driving a stolen army truck, holding a stolen army-issue gun, wearing a stolen U.S. Army officer's uniform, and was using the alias of 2nd Lieutenant Ricky Allen, got the shock of his life. In the dark of the back seat was sat a passenger, dressed in the US Army Air Force officer's uniform. Ricky was face to face with Lieutenant George McMillan Reeves, who had seen his face, who witnessed the robbery, and more importantly, had heard his very identifiable accent, a mix of Swedish, Boston. Fleeing as fast as he could, back in Hammersmith, he hid the truck in the Goldman Cinema car park. Ricky and Georgie hid out in her room. And following another failed robbery, Ricky was treated to a cold shoulder and a lengthy silence as her so-called gangster had failed her again. Carl Holton, alias Ricky Allen, was positively identified at Wilston Green Police Station by the cabbie John Strangeway and his passenger, the US Army Lieutenant. Having gone AWOL from Reading, with no known civilian criminal record in Britain, the hard part would be to find Ricky. As he didn't have a home, he didn't have family here, and being seen as a bit of a loser, he was a habitual liar and a fantasist. Ricky claimed to be a gangster, who, according to Georgie, had broken into many pubs, jewelers, cafes, greengrocers and pawnbrokers. He had shot an American soldier. He'd killed a man and a woman in the West End. And he'd killed several people in Chicago with a gun. As he said, he had run with a mob. But there was no proof of this. Not a single shred. 
and although he had stolen uniforms, a gun, and a two and a half ton truck, he wasn't a crazed gangster on a killing spree, but just a boy with a hatred of authority who was rebelling against his conscription. And although cold hearted, what he wanted to find was love. Having failed as a clerk, a mechanic, a driver, a skating instructor, a husband, a father, and a soldier, Carl Holton liked being Ricky Allen as much as he enjoyed pretending to be a gangster to impress a girl, as the truth of who he really was wasn't all that exciting. And even the killing for which he would be executed wasn't a cold-blooded murder, but as he said, an accident. What we've heard so far were Georgie's words. Her version. Recorded when she was arrested for her part in a murder. Georgie claimed that she was innocent. An excited little girl led into danger by the thrill of a wallaby gangster with a big gob and no brains. But who was the cold-blooded psychopath? Was he pressured by a desire to impress his girl? Or was she the true psychopath who goaded him? Part 3 of 3 of Cold-Blooded concludes next week. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey dave yeah randy since we founded bombas we've always said our socks underwear and t-shirts are super soft any new ideas maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy wait what i got it bombas absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Dun, dun, dun. There you go, folks. Part two. Hope you enjoyed that. Oh, all the thrills and spills and excitement of a uh, of, of a mystery keeper. I quite enjoyed researching this one because there's a lot. There's a lot of mystery to it. A lot of dun 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 and bits that you read in the kind of uh, there are there's bits and pieces out there. There's even a crappy film that was made years ago about it. And it's just it's just just not particularly good. Um, 
but it was just it was just really nice to dive into this case and go through all the all the bits and pieces um because there's so much to cover in this and what i don't want to do i I did think to myself do i do a a fourth part of the episode and we can dive into everything but i thought because sometimes it's just nice to tell the story and then you know do this this crappy bit but I, i think what i learned with uh the soho strangler is when we did strangler week and i'm able to go through all the details and people seem to re- really rate that quite people seem to like that which i liked so what i'm going to do is that i think there's a lot of bits and pieces what i want to do is go through all of the statements in its entirety for you so you can so you can hear what people are saying so what i'll do is i'll do all of carl's statements so ricky as he's known and all of uh georgie's statements or elizabeth as she's known so we'll do them all separately and then you can listen to them in their entirety and kind of get an idea of uh, what you think about them but next week is the concluding part as mentioned in the episode so there we go oh what time is it slightly later today 2.22 oh you needed to know that didn't you 2.22 uh when i finish this i think i'm going to go into town town the near town go to the coffee shop charge up my stuff i don't think i've got time to go up to the coffee shop up the road or do i would i be able to make it would i have enough time to charge up my laptop there Mm, i don't know maybe i'll go into town to get i gotta get some food anyway this is boring isn't it uh lovely day outside i've been trapped indoors writing this finishing writing this and recording this i can see some blue sky it looks nice haven't been outside yet uh i was about to say there's no planes but we just had two big planes go over for no reason. i think there were private jets i think it was those there's a private airport not too far away from here and it's um um there's no real customs there so you can come in and out it's, it's probably just drug dealers don't worry about that just drug dealers uh there was a coot outside having a bit of a shout a bit of a go but he's gone quiet uh and there's no kids which is great um yesterday i was having some fun recording because because i wrote this episode uh, wrote the last episode then recorded it but didn't edit it and then i started recording this one it was kind of useful because i worked out what how i wanted to edit the next episode um oh sorry the, these episodes and uh with the disposal of the body in the uh the ditch i thought oh i could really do with some nice sounds of uh, uh walking in a kind of a boggy scape and uh, on my way up to the the other coffee shop up there it's been raining for days and it's uh it, it is really really boggy so i've recorded some really lovely sounds of kind of splashing in uh splashing in water but then going through kind of thick mud and then leaves and that. so that's going to appear in here as well that's what i do is i i record an episode and then i think about sounds and then i go off and record the sounds um so there you go it's all a lot of work a lot of work but it's worth it um i might have a little cake later on i might treat myself i think i need one it's been a good week but an odd one i want my eyes playing up again really annoying it's flared up it's gone all red and horrible and weepy and so i've i've literally just messaged my eye specialist to see whether i have to go back into hospital oh joy i had 10 10 whole days of good vision and now i've gone backwards oh bloody biology eh uh, what else is going on oh oh thank you to new patreon subscribers so thank you to adam robson and rosie carpenter so thank you adam and thank you uh, rosie um 
Thank you for becoming patron subscribers. I hope you're enjoying all the goodies that are out there. Lots of goodies that I don't share anywhere, anywhere else. Uh, episodes of Walk With Me, everyone can listen to, depending on your tier. Uh, the uh, exclusive videos, all the crime scene photos go on there. You get uh, uh, the e-script, the unedited version that's in there. And sometimes I post some uh, some secret little things on there as well. So lots of goodies to enjoy. And early episodes of, of Murder Mile as well. If you want to get it like three days earlier than everyone else. Um, I've already taken off your hat. If you're wondering, I have taken off your hat. Your hat is off. Um, I've I've got prepped a tea for myself, but I just can't be asked. I don't think I want a tea. Let's just dive into shit. Not shit. Let's just dive into stuff, stuff and things. So we'll do some quiz questions, and then we'll dive into some extra stuff about Carl and all that. There's so much in this cover, this case to cover. There really is. So uh, I don't know how much I'll get into episode three, but there's. I'll pack in as much as I can. There's not enough to do in episode four because there's not enough kind of... You need kind of highlight bits and you need to tell a story. And if 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 you have an episode where nothing's happening, it kind of ruins the story. So that's why I'll do the, the Strangler Week type ideas. I think I'll call it like cold-blooded extra or something. I don't know. I'll work it out. Uh, so let's do some quiz questions. Uh, the answers will be at the end, end of uh, the episode. So uh, let's do this. Oh, I'm going to put on my hat now. Because as a man with a baldy bounce, it's pretty cold. Uh, so I'm sitting in the boat. The fire I had the fire on for a day, but because the heat caused my eye to swell up, uh, I'm, I'm sitting there in the cold uh, with my pyjamas on and then some clothes on top and then some gloves and now a hat uh, and a blanket and a hot water bottle. So there we go. I hope my eye gets a bit better. Otherwise, I'll be spending winter in sitting here in the cold by myself oh joy uh, obviously i'll be kept warm because eva will keep me warm by uh, ordering me around as she does she can't hear that at the moment she's uh, she's spark out she's unconscious as always right let's do the quiz questions um question number one what was the name of the fireman who found george's body question number two what was george uh, sorry why was george supposed to pick up violet's girlfriend at 8 a.m Question number three, what was George meant to... <sighs> I just run out, I've run out of steam and I can't read. Oh, I am using one eye again. Um, question number three, why was George meant to see Harry Hawkins at 9am? Question number four, name one of the items left in George's pocket. So obviously the killers took all of st- stuff they wanted out of his pocket, but what was left in his pocket? Uh, I named eight things... Name one of them. Uh, question number five. What was the name of the witness who heard the stolen car revving when George's body was dumped? Question six. What was found in George... Oh, sorry. Who found uh, George's wallet? I oh, just can't read this anymore. Uh, question number seven. Where was Ricky... Uh, sorry. Oh, fuck's sake. Question seven. Where was Carl, alias Ricky, born? So it's not even a difficult sentence. Uh, and question number eight, what military operation was he due to take part in but didn't? So let's dive into some details. Uh, uh, name was Carl Gustav Holton. He was a private, so not a second lieutenant at all. So I got burpees. He was in uh, the second battalion serving company in the 501st Infantry Regiment, which uh, at that point was part of the 101st. Uh, he's 22 years old. 
Uh, I'm not going to say that bit because that's a quiz question. He entered the US on the 1st of December 1923 when he was aged one. Um, his mother's name was Sinia and she was a personal maid to a lady in Boston. Um, they were um, so most of his life was spent in Boston, Boston, Boston. Oh my God, Boston, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, but his mother was Swedish. His father was Swedish. Uh, so he had, uh, as mentioned in the episode, he had one of those kind of weird accents where it's kind of a bit of both. We've all got kind of odd accents when you piece it together. Uh, he stated to a prison doctor that his father was a man of a violent temper and that his parents had separated for 17 years. So it was roughly when he was around five years old that his parents separated. Uh, he attended the farm and trade school in Boston. Um, he married, uh, I, I didn't mention it much in the episode, he married a lady called Rita and they had one daughter. Uh, she remained in Boston. As mentioned in the episode, uh, he'd, he had several jobs. He couldn't really find his place. Uh, he was inducted into the US Army on the 24th of May 1943. Um, didn't mention this in the episode as well, but I think this could be part of his anger as well. Uh, 17th of October 1943, he submitted an application for naturalisation to be an American citizen. Um, but it, it didn't seem to go through and we don't know why. Uh, one one thing does suggest that the paperwork was never completed. Another was that it was rejected, so we don't know. Uh, so even though... Yeah, he, he wasn't born in America, but uh, he was trying to become an American citizen, but couldn't. Um, he was inducted into the US Army. Obviously, this was just after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December 1941. He arrived in the UK as an army truck driver in January 1944. As mentioned in the episode, uh, he, seen, he knows how to drive a truck, and that's because that's what he does, and uh, hence he stole one. Uh, don't forget in the story that um, because these are US Army trucks, these are left-hand drive. Do you know, they're on the wrong side of the road there, left-hand drive. So when I mention uh, driving seat, I try and put in there left and right-hand drive, but if, if it's driver, it's left-hand side. If it's passenger, it's right-hand side. So so just think of it as the wrong way. There you go. Um, he came over here January 1944. He didn't know... Same with all the other soldiers. He didn't know why he was here. But later in June, he would find out uh, that he was meant to be part of the D-Day invasion of Europe. Um, we don't really seem to know why. Why he wasn't part of uh, of the invasion force, because everybody else seemed to be. So uh, we don't know. Um, he first absented on the 17th of July, 1944. He was arrested on the 12th of August, 1944. Um so basically, he, he he absconded from the prison uh, prison camp. Well, for him, it probably felt like it. Uh, absconded from his army base. Um, he was meant to have a court-martial. Um, he was arrested. They managed to get him back. He was confined on the 17th of August. And then the next day, um, which was meant to be his, his court-martial, he fled. Um, so from the 17th of August onwards... He's not on the base. He's he's kind of being hunted down. Uh, let's not forget that during this time as well, uh, you've got World War Two. When World War Two started, uh, I think I mentioned this in the Blackout Ripper episodes. Um, they cleared out most of the prisons of anyone who was kind of had a sentence of less than three months because they knew that they were going to have to fill it up with, you know, spies and people people like that, traitors. But also, it was going to be used for people who were. Um, 
are going AWOL. They knew there was going to be a lot of that going about because people were being conscripted as opposed to voluntary, voluntarily going, yeah, I will give my life and fight for my country and probably die on a beach bleeding somewhere. Um, he stole a gun. It was uh, while he was there. Uh, it was a 48 Colt Remington Rand or an automatic. Uh, it was marked United States property. Uh, he'd stolen it from Staff Sergeant Irving Sherman. Uh, we got the serial number there. There were seven rounds of forty-five caliber uh, bullets when it was later handed into the police, and it was an American a U.S. Army Service issue. Um, we'll probably get into this. It, we'll get into this into the next part of the episode. But Robert Churchill, who we mentioned in there, was the Met Police gun specialist. He said it was in good working order and was not liable for an accidental discharge. Ooh, uh, if only we were all like that. Um, He'd stolen a uniform. We don't know whether he'd stolen it from uh, someone's quarters or whether when he stole the truck, it was in the truck. That is a liability. That is a possibility. Uh, but he stole it in the cloak. He hid it in the cloakroom in what is known as a B4 bag. So that's one of those over the shoulder canvas things that the the guys carry. Uh, and that he, he hid it in the cloakroom at the Hammersmith Metropolitan Tube Station. Uh, and he stole the truck. Um, on the tw- either he says in Reading on the twenty eighth or the twenty ninth of September, so he'd had it for about ten days. Uh, so it's amazing that, given the fact that they that the American forces were missing a truck, that they weren't really searching for it that hard. Given the fact that it's quite easy to spot, and you'd be looking for the license plate, really, wouldn't you? But there we go. Um, as mentioned in the episode, uh, Ricky the gangster, um, he bragged about. Uh, he bragged to Georgie about all the things he'd stolen, all the places. Uh, he said, uh, Wednesday last, he broke into a jeweler's on King Street, a gown shop in Richard called Richardson's on King Street. We don't quite know why he broke into a gown shop. Maybe he wanted to get a dress for himself. Uh, a cafe in Shepherd's Bush, a green grocer's, grocer's and a pawnbroker's. He'd broken into several pubs in Reading, apparently, but as we've see, already seen in this episode, um, he doesn't, see, doesn't seem to be that confident in uh, uh, breaking into pubs or, or doing armed robberies, but there we go. And apparently he said he shot an American soldier. This is George's words, who, whom I think he said he drowned which is odd. He shot an American soldier and then he drowned him. Was it one or both? Or we don't know. Uh, another thing he said was that he killed a man and a woman with a gun in the West End and that he uh, hung around with a, a, a gang in Chicago, even though he's from Boston. But of course, it sounds more exciting, doesn't it? If you say uh, Chicago gang, don't forget this is kind of an era where you have all the, the kind of the Jimmy Cagney films on on the the cinema and this is what george is going to see and probably what carl's seeing as well and they're very excited about this and they want to be seen as something exciting um the girl who uh he knocked over he didn't really knock her over he pushed her off her bike and then stole her handbag and 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 possibly was trying to kill um now what was interesting is uh she never went to the police about this and the people whose house she was found outside of they don't seem to have gone to the police either so we we don't know whether she just didn't come forward and they didn't come forward um georgie and carl don't seem to say very much about this it's they're quite vague in their details about this although interviewed separately they did seem to come up with with similar details um but it 
it could have been bullshit it could have been something they made up we don't know this i think this is part of the thing that i'll probably get into for next week is that what we did what i did with this episode is i told you pretty much so part one was all george's story because i I really wanted it to be the the victim story and then part two we go right the psychopath so we focus on the killer and what i did with part one was i really focused on uh carl being the killer and because he's the one with the gun and he's the one making the decisions and all that so i want you to go oh dark and sinister man in in part one we don't know his name and you know it's just it's just the soldier the man it's things like that uh but when we get to part two we start learning about him and we we, we've i've already put it in your head that he's a he's a a gangster and a a psychopath cold-blooded all these horrible words but by the time you get here and you start learning about him you start realizing that he's just it starts becoming quite ineffective he's a bit useless he can't really do a lot and i think that's it maybe with this story is maybe maybe this theft didn't happen we really don't know much about we don't know who the girl's name was i really did search there's nothing in the police files nothing in the press statements there's nothing there at all um so i I don't think i'm going to read out too much of this because we will be going through um i'll read a little bit we will be going through all of um the story later on no actually i won't let's see what's ahead i changed my mind um yeah i'll just read a little bit of uh, elizabeth's i've written it down as ej this is georgina but don't forget her real name is elizabeth elizabeth jones uh when we got to reading he drove around town and we started back towards london at about 2 a.m uh i think we got on the road back as far as i can say near maidenhead but i know it was on the london bath road we passed a girl on a bicycle going in the same direction reason i'm reading this is because we used a lot of in the episode uh we drove on for about five minutes and he pulled up along the side of the road he got out and waited for the girl on the bicycle to come along i sat in the truck when the girl came alongside the truck i saw him push her off her bicycle oh what a brave boy uh when it was still going and she fell off into the road she screamed don't touch me and as it was a clear night i saw him pick something up and the girl ran off that would have been the purse uh ricky climbed back into the truck and i drove off it was a left-hand drive and during the night he taught me to drive Uh, as we were driving along at fast speed ricky drew my attention to the girl who was crouching in the shrubbery at the side of the road Uh, i think it was the front garden of a house as we were going along ricky looked through the girl's handbag when we were driving along ricky climbed over me and took over the wheel and asked me to look through the bag Uh, i found a book uh half a clothing coupons about nine shillings some letters some photographs some sanitary towels a face flannel some soap and a face towel so the girl was clearly coming back from work or or a night out we're not too sure um as mentioned we don't know anything about the girl at all Uh, the coupons themselves so um carl ended up selling the coupons to len bexley who we met at the start of the episode and we also met at the end of the first episode as well who is a friend of george's daughter len's daughter used to work with george georgia uh it's annoying here because he keeps calling her georgina and it's not it's georgia even though technically no neither is right nor wrong because it's elizabeth uh so uh those clothing coupons were sold to len bexley for about a pound um and that's all they really had don't forget they really didn't have a lot from her the um the failed robbery we know it was somewhere in sunning uh which is just outside uh reading 
we don't know exactly where the pub was it was the uh white heart i did do a search before but i couldn't find it's not there anymore um and i couldn't find out where it was it doesn't matter anyway it's not not really important to the story um they went to the cinema we don't know what film they went to see they finished at about 10 o'clock um we know that they went back to the little cafe that they went to before and had some food uh we know there was an air raid siren at that point because they she says uh, the siren sounded um and he said to her we'll go and do another job she said i understood that meant to go and steal some money from someone uh, now obviously th- what we're getting is all of her story first so um because this is the way it was presented to the police as well it's kind of um you'll find out in part three kind of he was arrested first um he did did a kind of a no comment and denied most of it but when they arrested her she started talking and that kind of really that really scuppered him um what have we got what have we got uh, um the uh tailing of the cab i it was a deliberate bit of deception on my behalf because i wanted you to think oh we're going to go back to the cab this is how they find him they're tailing him and then they pretend to be customers but it's not it's a different cab but this is the whole point is that it's all this failure that's going through like he is saying to her about oh i'm a big man i'm a gangster i've I've robbed all these places i've killed lots of people i used to run with a gang oh look at me i'm great but when you look at it like he's he's he struggles to even rob like a lone girl on a bicycle riding down a dark alley who's by herself um he he won't go in and rob in like a pub uh, which is closing up you know he, he's quite cowardly he's 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 not the gangster that he's professing to be but n- and now you know he can talk the talk but when it comes to walking the walk he's just he can't do it he's struggling do you know he, he, it's it's not really who he is and that's starting to come out and he's realizing that she's just not interested anymore she's kind of drifting away so he kind of has to do something so according to her according to him she says um she suggests that we rob a cab so that's what they do they find a lone cab they go north uh so um hammersmith is west it's probably about it's probably about six or seven miles west and, and slightly south whereas cricklewood from uh marble arch is it's 4.2 miles north north west ish more north than west that's not really important is it who cares um but that's the kind of the idea that's what i wanted to do with this episode was to make you go oh you're gonna catch up with george and then you know there's going to be something going on but it wasn't it was an entirely different cabbie um as mentioned his name it was roughly around 2 10 a.m on friday the 6th of october 1944 so if you were clever you would have noticed that we were 24 hours before the murder of george um i was being quite slightly deceit deceitful with the times i did tell you what day it was but i just didn't reiterate that it was 24 hours uh, until the end 24 hours before george was dead george was fine at this point uh he was out uh doing his job uh the cabbie was george strangeway 56 of north street in luton uh he was said he was driving his cab along uh the high road in kilburn in the back seat was lieutenant george mcmillan reeves of the u.s army air force uh, he was an officer he was riding as a passenger don't forget as mentioned in the episode because it's blackout not only do your headlights have to be they're like little tiny slits so you can use it to guide your way along the road but it doesn't illuminate the road that's the whole point of the uh, the blackout but also you can't have like 
your interior light in your car on. You can't switch it on because that will illuminate your car. <coughs> they even during World War Two, they would say, if you're going to light your cigarette, you've got to cover your hand to light your cigarette because they don't want anything illuminating your face, which can illuminate the street, you know, and and identify bombers to where big parts of the city are. So everyone is being really cautious. Therefore, um, even in the back of the cab, uh, some of the backs of the cabs as well. I know George's did. It had blackout screens. So he could see out of his front window and his side window. But the the, the passenger side windows at the back and the rear screen uh, were covered over with a blackout cloth. So therefore, it kind of shielded uh, any kind of light that may uh, emanate from there. Um yeah, we, we don't know the exact location of um, where on the Kilburn High Road uh, this took place. It wasn't registered in the in the police files, and and obviously the press don't record anything properly anyway, so there's no chance of finding it there. Um, but I think that is it. I think that's all I want to tell you about that one because obviously part three we're going to go through a lot. I can tell you more at the end of Extra Mile. That's the problem with these multi parts is that. There's only so much I can tell you, but then we'll we'll do the um we'll do the extra things and uh, yeah you can just listen to those when you need to and I'll, I'll add in all the all the extra details that I couldn't add anywhere else. Uh, also, I've got all of the original witness statements, so I might I might just read those verbatim. I think because they might be quite nice. Um, okay, let's do some quiz questions and then I can toddle off to the coffee shop. It's two forty six. It'll take me 25 minutes to get there. That's 3.30. That means all the little bastards will have left school. Ah, shit. Let's hope I can get a coffee shop. A plug socket. That's what I need. Right, let's do this. Ooh, my eye hurts. Right. Um, questions. Let's do the answers. Um, come on, brain. Get into gear. Uh, question number one. What was the name of the fireman who found George's body? It was Robert Balding. Question number two: What was uh, why was George supposed to pick up Violet at eight a.m.? He was taking her and some pals to Ascot races. Question number three: Why was George meant to see Harry Hawkins at nine a.m.? He was dropping the car back. Question number four: Name one of the items left in George's pocket by the killers. Okay, so if you've got any one of these, you've, you get a point. So it was two hankies, a broken comb, a latch key, five cigarettes, a cinema ticket, a pocket knife, a rubber, not that kind, and a vial of three pills. We don't know what the pills were, but don't forget, he'd he'd spent a while in a, 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 a psychiatric hospital, so it could have been for that. Um, question number five, what was the name of the witness who heard the stolen car revving when George's body was dumped? It was Reginald Turney. Question number six. Who found the wallet? It was John Anthony Jones, who was an electrician's apprentice. Question number seven. Where was Carl, alias Ricky, born? In Stockholm in Sweden. Sweden. Question number eight. What mili- <laughs> That was a really poor impression. Sweden. Question number eight. What military operation was he due to take part in but didn't it was the bloody invasion of normandy codenamed operation overlord on the 6th of june 1944 
So there you go, folks. That's it. Uh, hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, part two of Cold Blooded. Next week is uh, part three, the final part, the concluding part of Cold Blooded. We'll do the little, I'll put out the little extras immediately afterwards as well, so you can enjoy that. And then you can just dip straight into those. Uh, and then hopefully, I'm hoping to do a little Christmas episode. I was going to do some little mini parters, but I, I've, I've got a lot of projects on. I'm uh, so I, I don't know I don't know uh, I don't know how much time I've got so uh, that doesn't mean I'm going to die hopefully I'm not going to die um, but you know things so but I'll try my best anyway hope you're all having a good week hope you're all staying safe thank you for continuing to listen to Murder Mile it's very much appreciated have yourself a good week stay safe and be good lots of love but, uh. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.